Hey there. Before we dive into this special episode of the Understanding Politics podcast, Michael and I would like to thank our special guest, Ed Cronin, for coming on the show and offering his insights as a former police chief in the United States, as well as his experience in Europe. Ed had a lot of valuable insight to give, which we hope our listeners will enjoy. I know Michael and I certainly did. Ed also has a book, Just Policing, which we'll discuss later in the video. It's available on his website, justpolicing.org, or through Amazon. So definitely check that out. We highly recommend the read. Uh, But without further ado, let's jump into the podcast. Hi, welcome to the Understanding Politics podcast. Today, we have a treat for you guys. Today, we have Ed Crowen on the show. He is a former police chief and author of Just Policing. His work in Fitchburg, Massachusetts and Moldova has shown us a way to move forward on police reform. Thank you, Ed, for being on the show. Thank you, my pleasure. Great. So we will give Ed time at the end to plug his work and his website, but before we get into the interview, we want to give a quick mention to Podmatch, which has made this episode possible, and also our new deal with Audible Plus. This deal will give listeners two free books and a free trial of Audible Plus for a month, along with helping out our podcast in the big way. Both links to Podmatch and Amazon Audible will be in the description. And enjoy the show. Okay, so Ed, we wanted to talk to you first about uh, Finchburg. Uh, Could you just provide us some context on um, kind of the reforms you took there, uh, kind of steps, you know, to achieving some of the stuff that you wanted to achieve. Sure. Uh, I was police chief in the city of Fitchburg from 2002 to 2007. And it's a small urban city uh, in New England in Massachusetts. And uh, not unlike a lot of other urban cities in the Northeast who uh, never really recovered from the uh, exit of all the factories from the industrial age and kind of like uh, had all this housing available, which were originally taken up by factory workers, but the factories were gone. So it made it a very attractive place for new people and immigrants to come to. And when I took over the city, uh, I originally was a police officer in this city for 15 years and I had left. And after I had done some international work, I came back and I became the police chief. So uh, I was kind of tasked to bring order to a community that was suffering at that time a higher murder rate per capita than the city of Boston. And along with that, uh, the dropout rate for Latino students at that time and minorities was over 40% at the local high school. So uh, we had a massive failure going on in the community in terms of uh, what was going on and the violent crime and subsequent gang activity that went along with it. And when I was hired, I was brought in to perform a uh, war on crime type thing and and step up all kinds of enforcement, which I did the first year or so. And uh, the enforcement actually levels went off the charts. And after a year and a half, we found no significant difference. Um, Do you want me to continue on with that or? Um, Yeah, we'd we'd love to hear, you know, kind of at the end of your term, what changed? We're also really interested in uh, racial bias and police brutality, something you um, mentioned, you know, as higher enforcement. Um, Sure. Yeah. When I came back to the police department, uh, you know, it became evident to me that we had some really um, serious problems that weren't being addressed. And one of the first things I did, I asked my commanders was, who do we talk to in the Latino community? to start building relationships. And uh, they didn't say a word. And then uh, one of them came into my office with a a one foot stack of lawsuits from the Latino community and threw them on my desk and said, basically, this is how we communicate with them. And they sue us and we win. Um, So I was like taken back, like this is insanity. So I had to come up with a different idea. So it wasn't until combination of things happened. First, I started uh, doing advanced graduate courses at Suffolk University in Boston on organizational development while I was chief. And I became familiar with a concept called systems thinking, which was uh, actually created out of MIT in the 1950s. And is still 
in use today and used by some of the best companies in the world. Um, and at the same time, uh, a woman, a Latino woman came in. Her name was Syra, young woman. Um, and she was brought in to work in the public schools to try to raise the performance level of the Latino students. And she came to me and we met and um, it turned out, I didn't know it immediately, but she was a systems thinker also. And she was a mentor of probably the number one systems thinker in the world, Peter Senge from MIT. And um, we began to talk about systems and then we began to look at all the crime that was occurring and ask the question, why? What was the root cause of crime in the community? And I started out, you know, uh, not too bright by saying something like, what's the matter with all the Latinos in this community? You know, what's the matter with the fathers? I can't find them, where are they? Why don't they help? And uh, she said to me, you're the one that has all the power. What are you doing about it? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you got the millions of dollars. You got the guns. You got the cars. You got the ability to do whatever you want. What are you doing about it? So that was the beginning of me asking me a question, which I encourage anybody who's a leader to ask, what do I do to make the problem worse before I step out? And she brought that to me and I started reflecting on that. Then um, she began to introduce me to mothers in the community, Latino mothers, and they would come in and I would meet with them and they would blast me. I mean, tell me things like, you cops are the most racist cops, the schools are horrible, they're this, they're that, and the other thing. And I chose to do what? Listen, I didn't respond. This was all anger that was being centered towards me. But I began to listen. And then Sire and I began to talk about systems. What were the roots? And at the time, we had a newspaper in our local area that thrived on reporting the violence and vilifying the Latino community. So um, they called me one day, I don't know, out of guilt or whatever, and said, you know, maybe there's something we can do this summer to raise some money or something, you know, to help out. And I says, all right. So I talked to Syrah and I said, Syrah, why don't we do a systems thinking task force of all the leaders in the community? And we'll get together, we'll bring in professional trainers in the field, and we'll train in systems thinking. And we did. We brought in 40 leaders all the way from law enforcement to social work to probation to uh, you name it, Chamber of Commerce, the hospital, and for the first time, members of the minority community. And they trained us for two days on systems thinking. And it's a lot to go into right now, but the results were this. After two days, they we had done work in groups. We had done work with charts and all types of things. And a young Latino man came out to report out the results of the work. And he came out with systemic racism in the community and lack of economic opportunity for at-risk kids. So when, it, when that came out, first thing that happened was there was two, a college and a university president that were on the team, both white. They both stood up one after the other, along with the publisher of the newspaper and said, we are not talking about racism. And I took the white police chief's role, stood up, used my power, which is a very powerful position. And I said, yeah, we're going to talk about so that day, some people left and didn't want anything to do with it, but we began the process. The first thing we did was the police department who had been serving all kinds of search warrants and getting all kinds of you know, confiscation of money, property, houses, everything. We'd use that money traditionally for enforcement and equipment. I turned around and offered up that money to create jobs for kids. Mm -hmm. And other community members did too, including one of the colleges. So we began to hire kids who were at risk over the summer and we saw a decrease right away in violent crime. So as that went along, um, we also began discussions on racism and not everybody wanted to be involved, but we did it. You know, and I remember, where do we start? You know, you know, Syrah and I 
had a good understanding, but how do you get people to have this conversation? And we had a head start because we had done the systemic work. And a lot of people, even if they didn't, weren't sure of expressing their agreement with the results, they knew it touched on something important. So I decided that, I asked Sire, I said, why don't we bring in a movie and we'll all watch it. And we brought in the movie Crash. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but no. it's a great movie and it's about racism. And it's about how everyone uh, has that shadow in them that, you know, needs to be not just tamed, but needs to be educated. And it's not a, so much a judgmental movie as it is a movie. It's about a cop who's racist and, you know, how he interacts with people. And the good news that comes out of it is he ends up seeing his racism. And then he sees other people in the community that also have it. And even some of the people in the minority community are angry and fighting back. So it was a good start. And anyway, you fast forward after a number of years. Uh, last year, Fitchburg had one murder for the whole year. And the dropout rate went down to below 8% for Latino students. So what happened was at that point when we were in was a leverage point. After I went there and served more time, you know, as the police chief, a year and a half after the work was done, I was still chief, and we had a young black man come into our city driving a car, 19 years old, um, well known to the police as being a very minor person in terms of crime. You know, he was, you know, in police parlance, we call them a dope, just not smart enough to figure out how to not to get in trouble, but not really not bad. You know what I mean? They got to grow up, that type yeah. of kid. And he gets chased by the state police and he panicked. And the state police chased him into my city, into a side street. And one of my officers ended up cutting the vehicle off and stopping it. And then the state trooper got out of the car to go to the side of the car and the kid panicked and drove towards my officer. And the state trooper shot him and killed him. Now, this was back in like 2006, all right? Now, I look at that and I look at Ferguson and all these other things. What normally happens when that happens today is that usually the city burns down, okay? What happened that night was different. Um, it was late at night. I came in very early in the morning, went to my office, the phone rang, and it was the, one of the black ministers from the community who I had worked very long and hard with on this whole issue. And he said to me, he didn't say hello. He said, what happened? And I said, well, Tom, what I'm going to tell you is this is what I know. And I told him basically what I told you. And that's all I know. I said, and my officer said that if he didn't shoot him, he was going to. My officer was black. And he said to me, if you said it, chief, I believe it. So, I stepped away, uh, you know, and I had a crazy day after that, taking all the phone calls and all that stuff. And um, the next day, I, they had protests. They had all types of things that were going on within the city, but no violence. And there was a protest march. And I actually couldn't go to the march because if I did, I would have been ostracized from my community at the time especially my offices, um, because they saw this as shooting a criminal. I saw it as a wasted life. So I kind of hung in the shadows in my car, watched the march. They went up and they upper common and they did talks and all that other stuff. And then another community member in the black community came out and wrote an article about the insensitivity of the community to what had happened but said only the police department showed any sensitivity. Now, um, I found out two months ago, I saw this same black minister in Staples one day when I was going in to work on some issues with my book. And he said to me, you know, I read your book and all that stuff, it's great. He says, did you know that the night that happened, your supervisor called you at home? I said, yeah, I kind of remember that. And he said, 
There's all kinds of people here at the scene. They're all upset. There's people crying and yelling. And he says, what should I do, chief? And I didn't remember this. And he said, you told him, shut the street off and let him grieve. And I didn't even remember saying that. And he told me, he says, that's what you did. All right, so fast forward. You know, when George Floyd got killed, you know, something came out to me that was so obvious to me. Why? There was no communication. Where was the, you know, where was the bank account? Where was the trust that was built up over the years? You know, um, and I think that was the difference. And one of the things I write about in the book is how in policing after 9-11, we'd forgotten how to talk to our communities. And, you know, it didn't have to happen this way. And I don't blame the individual police officers that are out there today. They're only doing what society wants them to do. They are trying to do what it is they do. And when you have a shooting like I had, where you can split hairs on that, no one's going to give you the benefit of the doubt if they don't trust you. So I think that in my situation, I had earned that. I had spent hundreds and hundreds of hours. I just talked about the Latino mothers. I didn't even talk about the black community that I worked with. Um, but that was, you know, Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You ever heard of that book? Or you're a little young, but it's a good book. It's still good. And one of the things he talks about is building up the emotional bank account with people so that when something really goes wrong, you know, you've got that trust. And I think that's what we need to be doing to move forward. And we need to be funding that kind of policing and modeling it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that that's that's really incredible, the the whole story. So thank you very much for sharing that. Um that kind of shifts into another question we wanted to ask you. And obviously there's a lot of discussion among some groups of people uh, about, you know, like a defunding the police movement. Um, <clears throat> I mean, personally, I think that's a little bit too far. We're always going to need our police officers in our communities. And, but I think I'd love to hear your take. If you think there's, there's merit to that or, or what, what your whole take is of, of that whole movement. Yeah. I, I never bought into that. And you remember when I was talking about that story about, um, the Latino mothers screaming and yelling at me. Mm -hmm. That's what that is. That's anger, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and we got to, as leaders, be adults mm -hmm. and understand where that's coming from, you know? So in reality, what I would say, and this is part of what I cover in my book too, is we need to reallocate, you know? Uh, we. This is another thing. Policing in the United States is only 200 years old. Okay, and it was changed in London in the in the 1820s. Okay, and why did they change? Well, before policing through all all the ages had been done by the military, all right. And policing in England, which is what we're based on, um, had situations where um, the people would get upset at the royalty, the kings, and they'd come out and riot and all that stuff. You ever heard that expression, read them the riot act? Oh, Never heard that expression? Mm -hmm. Well, it's pretty common. Vaguely, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, I know I'm going to get hell when I get home, right? Mm -hmm. That's what it means literally today. But read them the riot act is actually comes from the police back in England during that time where the royal caller, whoever he was, would go out and the crowd was going crazy. He'd take his paper the riot act and he'd read it and tell them you either disperse now or look out and then they'd send the military in and the military would go in and kill everybody so they knew that wasn't working anymore so this guy comes along robert peel and he decides this isn't working and we need to have a whole new set of principles what police should be and anybody that studied criminal justice has studied robert peel and one of the things that sayings that still resonates in my head is that the people are the police and the police are the people and the police have no power without 
the permission of the people. Okay? Otherwise, it doesn't work. They have to be not just faithful, but they have to be confident that the policing that they're getting is what they need and want, okay? So what did he do immediately? Well, back in those days, the army wore red uniforms. So he changed their colors to blue, which is why we wear blue today, all right? They had brass buttons on their uniforms, the army. He put copper buttons on, okay? So he kept the military discipline to it, but he, had, he knew he had to totally change. So what I'm going to add on to that today is we're only 200 years old. Why can't we adjust now? Hmm. And look at, you know, have a real, you see all these people passing laws and reform. It's bullshit. You know, we need to have a real conversation. What do we want our police to be and look like today? And that's not an easy conversation because there are many people in police who are stubborn. They don't want to change. They like what they have. It's a multi-billion dollar industry with corrections, you know, which is another topic. But, uh, you know, it's a topic. Yeah, I'm, wow, there's so much to go off of there. But uh, I sometimes, like you said, like that, like that Latino mother, like the defund the police has strong roots in the abolish the police movement. And I think like you said, that's a completely wrong way to go. And I think you brought up an interesting point with Robert Peel. Uh, before before I hopped onto the show, I looked at, you know, other countries in Europe that have 100 or 200 more police per 100,000 people than America. Do you think we need more cops in America for some of these higher crime areas? Or you also indicated to like a changing of the role of police, like if we like reallocate like you said have more social workers you know um that's that's also another way economic opportunity to have people you know get higher paying jobs in college i'm just wondering you know what do you think what are the next steps for america i think you're right and i i would love to see the federal government like they did 25 years ago come out with a cops program they called it mm -hmm. and they would put grants out to police departments to come up with programs and projects to try things like that. You know, I didn't fully answer your question about allocation. Um, you know, maybe we need to go into a city like Fitchburg or whatever, do a full evaluation of what the needs are of the city. What are the needs, not what the police prescribe. All right. And maybe that means we need more social workers. Maybe that means we need uh, mental health counselors, you know, uh, maybe we need to dress differently, okay? Right now, um, I see, I'm, I'm sad when I see police officers walking on the street today with, you know, just all kinds of armor and heavy weapons. And, you know, it's just, that's, it, this is, you know, 1820 all over again, mm -hmm. you know? And we don't have to be afraid. You know, we always have to do enforcement, you know? Uh, I don't know if you saw over the weekend those two officers that were almost killed in New York City. You know, they were... It was uh, a machete uh, attack, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The New York PD was doing a fantastic job of making sure everybody was safe in Times Square. And this nut hacks two of them with a machete. And one of the other officers shoots them in the shoulder. And hopefully they're all going to recover. But one got a fractured skull and the other one got a wicked cut. Um you know, we have to have enforcement. That's not going to ever leave because we have people like that. Or when we go to calls, you know, um, if someone is completely off their rocker when you get there, you got to act. If he's about to kill somebody, you have to act. But in the long run, we need to be doing a lot more, okay? And one of the areas that I have been working on and investigating is this area of call restorative justice. All right. And I believe this is the future in many ways. And what is restorative justice? Well, it comes from the way we use it. It's a concept from New Zealand, used by the New Zealand police, by a police officer who decided to use it because they were having so many problems with Aboriginal kids in schools, their minorities. And these kids were failing in school. They were flunking, blah, 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 blah. And then finally, this guy's got a brain in his head and he goes to talk to the elders 
And they have a tribal system where they bring offenders in their community into what's like a circle. And there's many different versions of this, but the point of the matter is this. They began using it in schools. So instead, when a young kid, an Aboriginal kid acted out, instead of punishing him, they used a restorative process where they would bring in the victim, bring in the victim's parents, bring in the kid's parents, bring in their friends, bring in the teachers, administrators, whoever they needed to be. And it's voluntary. It's not like everybody's forced. You got to want to do it. But the result has been many times where two things happen. One, the victim is truly satisfied because the offender has to make up a plan to make up for what he did, all right? So you don't get that in court. When you go to court and there's a problem, there's a winner, a loser, and the court system takes over. This is a real system that brings about amends. Everybody's on the victim's side, feels like it's been taken care of properly. And what happens to the offender? He doesn't get stigmatized. He's invited back into the community. So it begins to break this dropout rate that we talked about. And they instituted restorative justice in Fitchburg High School. Mm -hmm. So that when Latino kids were having problems, it wasn't a matter of, you know, like, I literally went to the high school one day when everything was going on in my city because she was telling me these problems and I didn't know what was going on. So I go to the high school and standing out front of the high school is a school disciplinarian. And he's screaming at a Latino kid who's down the street. And he I don't know what the kid's name, but he said something like, Jose, in two weeks, you're 16. And in Massachusetts, we can throw you out and I'm throwing you out. That's how they dealt with it. And all those kids, where'd they go? They go into gangs, they go into drugs, they go into violence, and they become the police problem. So systemically, what's going on here before it even gets, it's not a police problem. It's a society problem. Mm -hmm. And people don't want to ask themselves what they do to make the problem worse. You know, I was in my police department when I was learning all this one day, and we had a Spanish guy come into the lobby, didn't speak English. And then we had two gals that worked out front, two nice ladies, white ladies. And he didn't speak English, so they said, have a seat. So I could see from my office what was going on. And they went to get the detective that spoke Spanish. And that guy sat there for 20 minutes. And then finally, the Spanish detective came out. And he don't like to translate because he feels like he's being misused because he's translating. And I don't know what that guy wanted, but he turned around and he walked out of the police station. Hmm. So I went out front and the boss for those two gals came out and I said, so-and-so's retiring in a couple of months. When we hire somebody, it's going to be somebody that speaks Spanish. And his response to me was, will they be qualified? So I've said that to many, many people and many, many people have said back to me, what's wrong with that question? And what's wrong with the question is the unspoken assumption that they're not a qualified people. Because if I said we were just gonna hire somebody else, that question would have never come up. So there's an example of unconscious systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And we do this even in our communities. We don't do it on purpose but we need to be rethinking how we allocate things, how we communicate with people. Yeah. I, I think you, I agree a lot with you about community policing and that's the way to go. And if we keep pursuing that, we'll see less, less crime statistically. I want to go back to your point on more of society being the problem and not really police. And this is one of the questions we had for you was, what do you what do you think about police unions and kind of you know you know there's a lot of especially in the media there's this narrative of like oh it's a couple of bad apples you know that killed george Floyd, that killed eric gardner uh brianna taylor what do you and also too i wanted to add this on to kind of how america is different from some of those european countries you've outlined is well wow, this is going a little bit back but like 
you know, we we had like 1960s that I can think about was like the the Civil Rights Act and kind of I remember like, it getting rid of the Jim Crow. Yeah, like that. That's like when we should have had a new order of police. I wonder what you think about like police being more enforcive when it comes to drug busts, when it comes to, you know, even red flag laws, kind of um, expanding more into people's civil liberties. You know, I know people like to use that term, but I'm not trying to use it as like a pejorative, just like, you know, the definition. So I I just like to pose that to you. No, look, that's a great insight. Um, and I'll answer it. This, I could say a lot of things, but I'll answer it this way. And I write about it in the book, too. Hmm. Um, if you're a leader and you're working in an organization, um, you, you're in charge of something, okay? And unfortunately, I see a lot in policing where people become leaders and become authority figures. That's to me, has nothing to do with leadership. Anybody can do that, all right? Leadership is... <laughs> Peter Senge told me the root definition of the word lead, uh, leadership. And it's a word called Li. And it's a European, Indian, Eurocentric word, okay? And it literally means a threshold, okay? Like in a door. And leadership or Li responds to stepping over the threshold, okay? Being different going in a different direction. And that's where we have our problems, all right? So when I look at, if I'm a leader, I look at what does the product do and what are the total results? Not just what I see every day, okay? And when I look and see that the United States of America locks up way more people than any other country in the world, locks up 10 times more people than China, all right? Um, and it's five times disproportionate to minority members. Something's wrong with the system, all right? And many times leaders are my, well, that's not my problem. Yeah, it is your problem. You're a leader and you need to speak out, okay? Because that's how it starts, all right? So if you're a leader, you can't be afraid to say that the system is a failure, all right. And we have to be now right now in Congress, you know, you guys are young, you're bright. Oh, we're going to this, this tough on crime stuff. Right. All right. Well, you know what that's going to do? That's just going to increase the amount of minority people in jail. And we're going to be right back where we started from. We're going to go to another cycle. Instead, we need to do the work. When I talked about the work we did in Fitchburg, I didn't get into deep things about that, but they were deep conversations between people who were facilitated to listen and not respond. And somehow, some way, that needs to happen in our communities today. And the police, I view, who are well-funded, for the most part, can be the leaders in that community. Look how powerful the police are. What if they turned around and they used their power to empower their community? Hmm. Right? What would happen? One, you'd have all, we'd have what I had in Fitchburg. You'd have all kinds of minorities helping us, going to bat for us. After I left, we, we elected a minority mayor. They elected minority city councilors. The whole dynamics of the city changed. People got involved. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we have to, we have to look at the big picture and see if what we're doing is really effective or not. And right now, overall, it's not. Right. Um, so we've we've got the chance to talk a lot about United States and especially Fitchburg and cities here and our, our police issues. But I was wondering if you might be able to touch on, you know, your work in, in Eastern European nations that, you know, you, you mentioned in your book and 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 in the pod match uh, description. We just, we'd love to hear about, you know, your experience there and and maybe what what changes you see and and how that compares with you know the us with like racial biases and that sort of thing yeah um i had i worked very closely with the european union when i was uh in moldova and they had a they had a specialist and we also had a uh, swedish partner a woman uh, who was a superintendent who 
ran some great programs at the same time. And one of the things we did was we got on board together and we worked on things. And one of the things, one of the quick answers to one of your saying is, uh, one of your asking things is, um, I went to Sweden. They took the Moldovan officers that I was involved with training to Sweden to do their training with them. And I went with them. I wanted to see what the Swedes did and how they did it. And I sat in on their trainings and all this other stuff. And it was remarkable. They were really good. Uh, and one of the things that they do in the big picture is you do not become an independent police officer on the street until you've completed two and a half years of training and probation. Two and a half years. So you have to go through your initial training. You go back out on the street. Then you have to go back in and get retrained again for several months. Then you go back out. So they have a very thorough process. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, and again, I'm only being general here, but most of the European, well, the European countries I worked in, they don't have the experience of the history of slavery hmm. with Black people. So it's kind of hard to, you know, to get a feel for that. I think, you know, uh, what I've seen there, and I didn't experience it really much, but, you know, there's a real resentment towards people from the Middle East mm -hmm. uh, because of the high degree of immigration and things of that nature. Um, but um, overall, like, I can talk about Moldova because I was brought there. It's a small country. It's the size of Maryland. Uh, it's about, oh, I don't know how many people. 3 million people or something like that. And I worked in the city of 600,000. And uh, they were a very corrupt police department when I got there, corrupt in the sense that they were the old Soviet style uh, where they weren't paid anything. They were paid like a hundred bucks a month, which was ridiculous. So they had to go out on the street and take money from people. And the way they would do it was they'd stop you for speeding, let's say. And they'd say to the driver, well, you know what? I'm going to take you to court. And the fine's going to be $75. But if you give me $25 right now, I'll let you go. Mm. Right? Then in turn, they give it to their supervisor, who in turn gives it to their supervisor, a cut, cut, a cut, a cut. It's like a capo regime, like the mafia. And it's extremely difficult to break that, okay? Because that's the way it is. Um, so when I got there, the embassy told me, uh, basically, we don't want you working with them. I'm like, wait a minute, you're paying me big money to be here. I got millions of dollars in my budget and you don't want me to work with them. And the, the woman at the head of the embassy said, if I had my way, I'd take away all your money and I'd give it to the women. Okay, well, that's a good place to start. So uh, at the time I was there, they brought in a new police chief. So I did, the only thing I knew how to do is that was like I did with Syra was to create an honest relationship with this guy. And we began a relationship and talking about it. And one of the things that I always use when I train or discuss at that type of level is I'm not afraid to talk about my mistakes because it kind of, you know, they know they got problems, but if they, if you're human and you're trying to show that side of yourself, you know, what's going on and all that. And, um, one of the things that I was very aware of in Moldova, first of all, they don't have really a minority. They have a Roma population who are gypsies, but they're very, very small and they're located in a very distinct part of the country. So they don't have violent crime. And you literally, a woman can walk out in the park at two in the morning. She's fine. All right. So at the time when I got there, the American government had given them money to build a, a new community policing station, which I was kind of like, whatever. And, um, you know, normally when we do that in the U.S., we go into a really tough neighborhoods. You know, it's kind of a way of the police planting their flag and saying, you know, we're in the thick of this, you know, come in and talk to us, all this other stuff. They didn't have that problem. You know? So uh, one of the things that I was very aware of from my time working in Eastern Europe was the lack of freedom and empowerment of women, all right? Over there, they still have the idea in many of the countries and many of the villages and all that stuff that, you know, if he beats her, he loves her. 
you know, or it's alcohol causes it, which it, it's not alcohol. It's about a power struggle. Okay. So one of the things I saw in the police department was they had a lot of women police officers who were in non-traditional roles. They weren't allowed to go out and go on cruises at the time when I first got there and do things like that. They would, you know, sit, stand there in their high heels and uh, skirts and take care of little children or things like that. So I, I decided to train and empower the women. Why? Because number one, they didn't have their hands in the till. They weren't corrupt and they were starving for training. So we poured all kinds of money along with the Swedish police and the EU in empowering the women police officers. And we got a great result from that. You know, the officers started learning more about policing. Uh, they began to take on a lot of the man roles in the department. Uh, today, they have a very strong uh, women's police uh, um, association. And when I had worked with the chief for about a year, we were opening this new police station. And he says, you know, we should open it, Ed. What do you think? And I said, you know what you should have in that police station? Why don't you hire a woman, a domestic violence advocate to work in there? And I remember him jumping out of his seat saying, what a great idea that is, you know? So for the first time, we had the first woman's advocate. And the police at first were like, oh, we don't want that. But after like a month and a half, they loved it. You know, they could have these severe problems with women coming in with all kinds of issues being taken care of because those weren't police matters at those points. Those people needed all kinds of help with housing, education, you know, poverty, whatever the situations were. So we went on and did a lot of that work in the three years I was there. And I worked very strongly with the organization called La Strada. Uh, and they were in charge of, they, they brought in the advocacy into the police, but they were very strong in domestic violence, empowering women. And after I left, year after I left, Moldova elected a woman police uh, president who was a graduate of Harvard University. All right. And two of the women that I worked with at La Strada, one is the Minister of Internal Affairs now, which is like the Secretary of State. The other one is another secretary. And the police are going through a decorruption phase. All right. And this all happened right before Ukraine happened. So it couldn't have happened at a better time. But um, so the similarities of what I did in Fitchburg was I used a systems approach. You know, where is the leverage point? And the leverage point in Moldova with a woman. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd love, I love to circle back to America just because I'm more comfortable and asking, we're kind of like a politics podcast. We wanted to ask you what politicians are getting it right when it comes to police reform and police policy. Well, honestly, I, the only person that I've seen out there who I really recently, recently came in touch with was a gentleman who was just elected governor of Maryland. His name is Wes Moore. He's African-American. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's a graduate of Johns Hopkins University. He is a was a captain in the military served in afghanistan and he is a data-driven person and he comes out and says that so i think his administration could be very ripe for looking at change models you know but right now what i see out there is and i don't want to get political but I, I see all this stuff on the right talking about let's lock them all, lock all the bastards up again, you know, which is just going to repeat the same cycle over and over again. Um, and I'm really disappointed in Joe Biden because I thought Biden could get behind this idea of, you know, working with communities again and empowering the police. 
you know, to work with the communities and give the power away to them. You know, to me, it's, to me, it's obvious. Um, but, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm doing the podcast. I'm trying to get the word out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, we also want to ask you too, what do you think about police pay uh, when it comes to America, when it comes to Moldova, even you, Sweden, like, are, are police underpaid here? Is there is there bad incentives to become a police officer here? Uh, my my first question to that is absolutely not. All right, especially in Massachusetts, you can make really good money here if you want to work a little bit of overtime. You do your job. If you're doing your job, you go to court all the time. Okay, that's overtime. All right. <laughs> now I can't speak for every state in the country. I don't know. All right, yeah. but if a police officer today once they're ready for the street in Massachusetts, can't make a hundred grand a year, then they shouldn't even be there. <laughs> All right. It's very well paid. You know, not every state probably does that, but come on. I mean, let me tell you what I think is the underbelly of one of the biggest problems of policing in the United States. And you mentioned the unions. Okay. Yeah. The unions are over, they have too much power in different areas and all that stuff. But in my opinion, okay. First of all, I'm an alcoholic and I haven't drank in 43 years, okay? So I know what alcohol does to people and I know how deeply embedded it is in law enforcement, okay? Uh, it's a way of self-medication. It's a way of getting together and downloading after things happen and things of that nature. And it becomes a very social uh, tool that gets widely abused. Okay. And there are many people, let me tell you this way. I was a police chief for seven years. I never once had an officer come into my department in my office and say, chief, I need help with alcohol. The only time they get help is when they crash and burn. Okay. And we have fabulous programs. Okay. And great. Get the guy out of it. Okay. But what kind of destruction has that person done to other people and organization? all the years when that shit's going on, all right? And that calcifies what's going on, all right? And another thing, I'm also kind of a semi-amateur in what alcohol does to people, amateur expert, okay? And if you know anything about alcohol, when you're drinking it all the time, it begins to affect your brain. It begins to stop the thinking process from developing. It begins to get people to curl into themselves and it kills the organization. And that shit's all going on right now. It's still going on and no one's even brought it up. They, they act like as if, oh, he'll get help when, he want, when he's ready. No, they're hurting the organizations. And, you know, one, you know, and then when you would say, well, what would you do about that? Well, how could you change that? Well, for one thing, we need to change the training. I mean, how can we train people in a military model still Tell them we don't want to be in a military model and put them in with guys that are already trained in the military model. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I would be doing if I had police training is I would have two weeks of intensive training on alcohol and drug abuse. Mm. I'm talking intensive and I'm talking, you know, walking people to see people who are in big trouble. You know what I mean? And I would be taking officers who are young, take them out of the academy for a month and put them into a local shelter. Let them live with people that are suffering and understand where they're coming from. Put them in a minority organization. See that single mother that's got three kids and two jobs. You know, then maybe you come up and, you know, a lot of cops are good like that. They do do that in their own way. But we need more of those people. Yeah. And that means a whole revamp of the training system. Because, you know, I had guys that worked for me. They, you know, they came out of the military. And we've had great guys out of the military too. I'm not criticizing, but they came on a department looking for the big score. Like they were going to go to the bank robbery one of these days and they were going to shoot it out with the guys coming out the door and they were going to get the medals. And that's what the job was about. That's nothing. That never happens, number one. And 99% of what you do isn't that stuff, mm -hmm. right? So it's only been 200 years, right? What's that in time? I just oh. wanted to say one thing real quick. 
I want to, you touched on like the drug problem. What do you think about, has Massachusetts legalized weed? And should, should the United States follow with that? And you could talk about meth and cocaine and other drugs too, if you. Well, personally, you know, like I said, I, I'm, I've been sober 43 years. So I look at alcohol and drugs differently than a lot of people, all right? And, you know, if you came in my house right now, I got plenty of beer in my refrigerator, all right? I got plenty of wine here, whatever you want. I have a healthy relationship with alcohol, all right? So I don't feel I'm in a position to judge what people do. Um, you know, I have friends that drink responsibly. I have family members that drink responsibly. I think it's a matter if you want to smoke pot and you're responsible about it, that's your business. But if it's going to take your life into an area of, you know, darkness and, and you know, unproductivity, then it's not good for you. It's unhealthy. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, that's all part of that whole mental health equation that I think we need to be looking at more. Man, I think I think that about does it for our questions. Um, you know, just if you want to you know, talk about your book at all and your other projects you're working on. Here. It's called Just Policing, and it's my journey to police reform. And it's part memoir and part talks about a lot of the things that we talk about. And I see a different vision, very different vision from my contemporaries um, of what policing could be. You know, and this whole idea of, you know, Black Lives Matter, of course they matter. Oh, police lives matter. Knock it off. That's not what it's about. Black lives matter and everybody being upset is the anger. And we need to be leaders and adults and understand that that's anger. And we need to deal with it. People need to vent it. And that's okay. You know, I got called racist and everything else. <laughs> so what? You know, get over it. Um, so anyway, the book is uh, available. You can get it off my website. It's www.justpolicing.org. Or you can get it through Amazon and also Barnes & Noble. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ed Cronin, for being on our podcast. We appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. All right. Thank you. All right, guys. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. too.